Really dank and crowded orphanage for girls. The second is a lavish mansion that would become Annie's home one day. The orphanage seems to have been made miserable by its master, the heartless alcoholic Miss Agatha Hannigan, an awful, she was just an awful woman. The mansion seems to be made splendid and welcoming by its own masters, the kind, joyful Warbucks. These places are polar opposites, in part because of who ran the space and the people who lived there. The same is true of God's space and the people who live with him. The place where he dwells is made what it is because of him. But there's one problem for us, and it's that because of our sin and our rejection of God, we don't belong where he dwells. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were rightfully kicked out of the place where God lived. Now every person on earth lives with a sense that they don't belong, that they're not home. And I'd ask you, do you find yourself looking for home? Even this morning, even, even though you have a sense, I think I know where I belong, there's still this wondering that you might have. Some of us were looking for home and have found it. Some of us still are spiritual orphans. That is, unless God has something to say about it. And thankfully, he's saying something to us through Psalm 87. And it's something that goes like this. Through Christ, the living God dwells with us and remakes us to find our home with him forever. Through Christ, the living God dwells with us and remakes us to find our home with him forever. The series we've been going through is, is Psalms, finding joy in the slog of life. And we've been going through the first, some of the first initial Psalms and we're making a little bit of a jump this morning because I, I hope and pray that this, this Psalm that admittedly at first glance you're like, I don't know what this is for, why this is here. Pray that this becomes a place where you can find joy and assurance and hope in the slog of life that you find yourself in right now. Just a few points for us this morning. The first being that God's dwelling place is glorious. God's dwelling place is glorious. David knew the importance of song and how it played into our worship of the one true God. Even this morning, we're, we're coming and we're singing to God because he is worthy of song. He is worthy of praise in every form. But David didn't write this psalm. The title says this was written by the sons of Korah, which was one of the families that David and Samuel selected to be keepers of the entrance of the tent of meeting before the temple was built. It's no wonder that the psalm is about the city where God dwells. These guys, the sons of Korah, ate, slept, breathed, and lived for their role at keeping and managing and guarding the entrance to God's dwelling place. This was their life. This was their role. But these guys had history. Their namesake, Korah, back in Numbers 16, led a revolt against Moses and Aaron. They thought Moses and Aaron were terrible leaders, that they were elevating themselves above the rest of the people. But if you remember, it was God 
who had chosen and installed Moses and Aaron. To show which side God was on, the Korahites went to the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, and God consumed them with fire, and he opened up the ground and swallowed up their sympathizers. Is, I, in just reading the detail of it, it's a terrifying story, because directly after that, because of their actions, a plague sweeps across Israel and wipes out 14,000 people in a very short period of time. It was just to show that Korah and his mates were, were coming against the living God and this is a holy God that you don't just come close to willy-nilly, that you don't just appear on his doorstep unannounced because he's holy, he stands away from sin so the sons of Korah have two things embedded into their history, into their family life. God is holy. His loyalty and wisdom are not something you question as if you were mistaken or faulty. He's not someone that you, you um, find fault in and, and assume that your plan and wisdom is better than his or that sin is not your downfall. The second thing, God is merciful because these same family members, the sons of that man who revolted against Moses and Aaron and ultimately against God, were later made doorkeepers of God's house. They were given a place of privilege close to God even after what their namesake Korah had done mercy towards them so this song is is a praise song and they're writing out about a place but the significance of that place is found in who dwells there look at verse one through three on the holy mountain stands the city he founded the lord loves the gates of zion more than all the dwelling places of jacob glorious things of you are spoken O city of god the place where the prophets prophesied that they were speaking the words of God. Their, other nations had some sense that God lived there, the, the true God. I think of the Queen of Sheba who came during Solomon's reign and marveled at the temple and the wisdom that Solomon had and was just marveling and saying, surely, like, this, is, this is where God lives. Glorious things of you are spoken. The glorious King of kings, the creator of the universe, the one true and living God in his astonishing wisdom and vast love chose to live among his creation. That's past tense because he decided to do so from before the foundations of the earth, before they were even laid. And from day eight on, he was going to live in the creation he had made. Actually, he was going to live on earth. In fact, he was gonna live in Eden and actually he was going to live in the garden of Eden with mankind. So he's putting a very specific focus on this is the exact place where I'm going to dwell with my people. But something we have to be clear about with God is that he is not bound by time, space. He is everywhere present. David says, where, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend all the way to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed all the way down in Shoal, you are there. The eye of the Lord sees 
everything. He sees us, he sees all of us. And there's not a place where any man or woman will go, whether, whether those hidden places of sin and deception and hiding or the lonely places where no one seems to be. He is present. So even though that's true, God chooses to localize his presence upon a particular place, like Eden. Or take the tabernacle, for example. God's present in all the earth, but he chose Israel out of all the other nations simply because he wanted to. Then he pitched his tent with them, the tabernacle. He would pick it up and move, and they would move with him. He was living in the center of the camp. But even within that tent, there was the, holy, the most holy place where his bright glory rested. Heaven is spoken of as God's eternal dwelling place. Kids, you're right. God lives in heaven. That is the place where he says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. That's his place of rule. But he also lives with and among his chosen people. In this case, the tabernacle eventually became the temple, which, which was located in Jerusalem, a.k.a. Zion in Israel. For the sons of Korah, the fact that God had chosen to dwell there makes all the difference to them. Jerusalem wasn't necessarily the greatest city in history. It might have been when Solomon ruled, but what makes it great is not the technology or the affluence or the population. What makes it great is that God had chosen to live there. God, the creator of all things. Steve showed a picture last week of, of stars, the one who spoke light into existence, the one who fashioned the first man from the dust, had chosen to live in the temple in Jerusalem. God loves this place where he and his people dwell together. More than even the rest of Israel, he was the one who founded his home and it's glorious because of him. It's beloved to him because he chose to love his people and he dwells with them in a unique way. Psalm 9 verse 11 says, sing praise to the Lord who dwells where? In Zion. He dwells there, not somewhere else. Yes, he's everywhere present, but he makes himself known and dwells most closely with mankind in this place among his people. A lot of people still see the city of Jerusalem in this light. It's the Holy Land. God must still be there. He must have some special favor still there. But does God still live in Jerusalem where there is no temple anymore? Well, there came a point in Ezekiel particularly, where God's glory lifted up from the temple and left. His people were wicked. He sent them into exile. But then you crack open your New Testament and John opens this gospel, his gospel with, the word was God. And that word became flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. And Paul says of Jesus that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell 
in Jesus. This was not some knockoff of God. This is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature, God in the flesh walking around with us. God chose to dwell among us, not behind a curtain, not in a don't come too close kind of way, but in the form of Jesus, fully God and fully man. But, and Jesus even described his own body as the temple of the Lord, but he said it was gonna be torn down, he was gonna die, and then he was gonna be raised up. But then he ascended out of sight into heaven. So we have to ask ourselves again, okay, he doesn't live in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. He lived among us as Jesus, but Jesus ascended and left. Where does he live now? Where is God's glorious dwelling place? It's right here. Church, God lives with us. Yes, he's seated in heaven on his throne, but he dwells with his church in a totally unique way compared to everyone else on this earth. He has given us his spirit to dwell within us and particularly as we gather together, this is the, this is the only place on earth, the only exception being other church bodies, this is the only place where God specifically says I dwell there. So if you wanna spend time unpacking anything, I'm not gonna be able to spend time to apply that a lot this morning, but try this on for size. God lives among this church. There's a, a, a real beauty to that. There's a real uh, shock and awe to that. He lives among this, this group of people that I see every Sunday, sometimes during the week. He lives here. He has chosen that. He, he favors us, he loves us and wants to be here. That is astonishing. Take note of 1 Peter 2, four through five, if you're still wondering about that. Peter says, as you come to Jesus, a living, and I'll add breathing stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, as you come to Jesus, as we gather together, you yourselves like living, breathing stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying that you and I are being used to make a house, a spiritual one, but a house nonetheless. For who? For God himself. Now there, there's a whole lot of implications here of Okay, why does it matter that we, we confess our wrongs to one another? Why does it matter that, that we bear one another's burdens, that we love one another? It's because we are God's house. We are God's body connected to one another, being built together. And if things are, if rifts are forming, if, if gossip runs rampant, then it's, there's, there's damage that is done to this dwelling place of God that is meant to be totally unique among all the earth. He wants to live with us and he's made that possible by coming to us as Jesus. He was the one who, who went the distance to come to us, walking among us and then in doing so, in dying and rising for us, 
He's transforming us into holy, acceptable, pleasing components in his new house. That's why when you walked in here this morning, you didn't enter some concert gathering or some conference assembly. You joined up with your brothers and sisters to make up where God makes his dwelling place on earth today. That is hugely significant. That should change how we understand Sundays. I mean, seriously, if we, if we came in with this lens of I am a piece of the whole of where God chooses to live right now, um, I'm glad to be here together with my brothers and sisters on Sunday mornings. And, and yet there's still more as far as expectation goes Like, yes, we do this weekly, same people, same general mix of people. Um, Sometimes my expectation just dulls over time. Or even community groups, it's great. We get to hang out, we get to have a meal together. But there's something more that we don't see. God is saying, I'm I'm coming with you. I live with you and I am here in this gathering place. When, When two or more are gathered, that's why because we, we manifest and display a certain level of God's glory that's nowhere, that's nowhere else on earth. So this is, as far, as far as we're concerned, this being our church family, we don't meet with tons of other believers every, every Sunday from across the world necessarily. It's like, this is the best place on earth. This is where God lives. And I don't wanna use that like, like as if, um, I'm not really convinced of that, but we should all think that way, that this is the best place on earth. Rather, no, like this is, this, God hasn't said that I dwell anywhere else except with my church, with my bride. God dwells here not because of the building, but because we are his redeemed people. So whether Zion in the past or his church now, God's dwelling place is glorious because God is there. We, he made it, he established it, where he dwells, he gets the credit for anything that happens among us. But that's also why we shouldn't treat it lightly when we can't be together. We shouldn't treat it lightly, this meeting together thing. We shouldn't neglect meeting together. That's why we expect the spirit to move in us, to teach us, to heal us, to strengthen us, to reveal the glory of Christ to us when we get together. Even youth camp, we're we're traveling to youth camp with other brothers and sisters that's part of God's church in Ohio, Indiana kind of space. This is still a meeting place where God is going to be there. That changes how we look at youth camp. That changes what our expectations are. Don't let your heart suggest to you that the gathering of believers is normal. This is a miracle. And what makes us glorious, what makes our grace church Dayton glorious has nothing to do with us, but has everything to do with God who dwells here with us. I jumped the gun a little bit because it's exciting to me to talk about where God lives right now, but we're gonna revisit, kind of go back in time a little bit to the psalm for, for point two. Point two is we have been born into God's glorious dwelling place through Christ. Now, uh, everybody who's associated with youth camp, the theme, he is, therefore I am, or for you guys, he is, therefore I am. 
Who God is makes a whole lot of difference about how I think about myself, how I think about other people. Um, This is a little bit of a teaser for you guys, a little precursor. And it's right here in verses four to six. We know that God doesn't dwell in this city anymore, but with his new covenant people, believers in Jesus, but it's worth understanding, how did we get there? How did we get in that privileged spot? Verse four, among those who, men- who, uh, who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in here, in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. So what's, what's happening? What kind of picture is this painting for us? So what God is doing is he's identifying the citizens of his holy city. So like, like a census, as people are kind of checked in at the gate, pick your analogy like a border crossing or, or the gate at the airport. These are the people who know God, who are his. But get this, none of the people mentioned are Israelites. Now I have to say that I'm borrowing much of this. I remember when a man named Jason Deroshi kind of explained the psalm for the first time and, and just my eyes were opened a little bit to the, the beauty of it. So I'm borrowing a lot, but, I, but it's also, I can't tell whose who's thoughts are whose at this point because uh, with just a little bit of explanation, this can move from confusing to, to wonderful all at the same time. So, and, and you can find this in, in your own Bibles, but Rahab is another name for Egypt. Israel's great captors, sun worshipers, many gods, the kings of the Nile, Babylon, the mighty city of the ruthless Assyrians, godless people, also Israel's future captors. Philistia, the Philistines, arch enemies of Israel, God cursors, Tyre, the filthy rich merchant neighbors of Israel with trade ships full of wickedness and excess. Cush, modern day Ethiopia in Africa. Cush symbolized the farthest reaches of the known world. These are the far offs and the enemies of God, the least deserving to have God dwell with them, the worst of the worst. But what does God to say, have to say about his enemies when his enemies' eyes are open to their sin and his mercy? He says to them, this one was born here in Zion, in my home. This is a beautiful picture of the nations parading into God's city, whether cities or countries, whether Uh, whether you speak English or Kikoye or Hindi or from Maryland or Pennsylvania or Ohio, streaming into the city and at the door, each person turns in their tattered, blood-stained, blackened birth certificate and gets an entirely new one. God chose Israel as his people Well, you're not an Israelite. In Christ, that's not a problem at all. 
Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember this, this was you. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You belong in God's glorious dwelling place purely because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. He brings us near to the gates of God's house and on his ticket we come in. We are welcomed, renamed, and literally born a second time. David in in Psalm 51, five says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were born as sinners from day one. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, dead in our trespasses. But God made us alive together with Christ. There was no escaping our birthright, so to speak, our inheritance of sin. But we've been made alive through Christ. We were brought to God's gates through Christ and he declares over us this one. This one was born here in my house. In the place where I dwell, you belong with me. Being born again didn't just show up out of nowhere in the New Testament, but it takes full form when Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that still stands today for us. You must be born again. You must be born of the spirit to see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asks the pressing question, how in the world, when I'm old, can I be born again? The point is, we're not gonna go through the process of birth again, but inwardly, spiritually, if you have trusted in Christ, you are not the same person that you were before. A new life has come to form in you, resurrected from death, now living forever. You've been born a second time. Paul says, your citizenship, it's in heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ. And Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Christ were not raised, we're to be pitied. But if he is, if he was raised, we have this living, long-standing, eternal hope. You are not the same. Your home has changed. Your whole soul has been raised with Christ. Your life is hidden in heaven with him. He lives with you and you will live with him because he has made you belong there. You were born into his house under his protection, under his generosity and his 
love the moment you trusted in Jesus and repented from your sins. You were far off. But Jesus himself brought you near by his blood. I've, I've been making a lot of hand motions, but God is, is increasingly with his people in kind of concentric rings. He, he dwells among his people on earth. He dwelled with Israel. He dwells with his church. It, it is concentric circles. He has brought you from the outskirts, from the outer darkness, and brought you into right in the middle. We have access to his throne room. We are, uh, the doors are flung wide. The curtain has been torn. There is nothing barring us from the God of the universe who loves us with an everlasting love. Now, if there's any sense that you're prevented from getting there, know that Jesus stands at the door. He's the one that gained you entrance. And so long as you have him, there's nothing keeping you. There's nothing keeping you from throwing yourself on him in sorrow, throwing yourself on him, confessing your sin. Jesus has brought you near by his blood. Verses four to six include this picture of God registering his people. I take it in, in a book. Writing down names with the note beside it, this one was born here. This hints to a particular book referenced in Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life, in which are written the names that will live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, I don't know how much you've made the connection for yourself particularly, but if you are in Christ, your name spelled out, written in, is currently in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have been registered. You will be there with God for eternity. Like I said, we're going through these psalms to help us find joy in the slog of life, the the day-to-day kind of grind. And that's why I'm telling you this, like it matters for your day-to-day grind to think my name is there, kept, secure, verified in blood, claimed. It wouldn't surprise me if someone needs to hear that this morning, that if you believed in Christ and are following Christ, your name is in the Lamb's book of life and you were born in God's house. In the meantime, though, remember you were a stranger. Remember that you were far off. Remember that none of the rights and privileges you have as a child of God are because of your ability or your history or your impressiveness. It is the sheer grace of God poured out on us through Jesus Christ. I have no reason to be in that book apart from the lamb who spilled his blood for me and has put me there. So we have reason to rejoice in that. Even right now, even even when things are sour, my name is there. I trust, I trust your word. That's where point three comes. Drink in the truth that your life comes from Christ. The sons of Korah end on a beautiful note. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. This is the picture of the city of Jerusalem just alive with singing, dancing, parading. For some reason, I picture this like citywide tailgate party. But I mean, you get the idea. Grill's out, everybody's out in the streets, everybody's celebrating, singing, rejoicing. And what are they saying? 
They're saying, all my springs are in you, which seems like a strange way to kind of express your excitement. But here's the thing, we all need water. That's the most basic of human necessities. I can't tell you how many times I'm gonna tell somebody this week at camp, make sure you're drinking water. You will pass out. Switch it with Gatorade every once in a while, but you definitely need water. It keeps our bodies working. It gives relief to our parched throats. It gives life to everything that grows, whether plants or animals or us. The Lord knows how vital water is to us, so he uses water as an analogy to describe the source of our life. All my springs are where? They're in you. You are the source of my life. And he also uses it, though, as an analogy for the much-needed salvation, which we take in as if we're drinking crisp, clean, cold, nourishing water. I wanted to read a little bit from Isaiah to you. Isaiah 12, it's a, it's a short chapter, just five verses, six verses. But it gives a picture of how water is used to kind of equal salvation in Scripture. So he's, he's saying, he's predicting something in the future, but we know that that something has come for us today. He says, you will say in that day, for us now, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for, you, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So what, what, what do we do? With joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim, his name, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praise to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this made, be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, who? O inhabitant of Zion, that's you. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So it's this picture of you will draw deep from the wells of salvation. This is God's water for us, pure, sweet. You know what Jesus says? He says, if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. You will never wonder where is, where does my salvation come from? Where, who, who is the answer to my greatest need and problem? But not only in that moment, I'm, I'm also thinking we can draw from the wells of salvation daily, not just to be saved, but to experience the power and refreshment of God. So are you spiritually parched? Know this, that your life comes from nowhere but Christ. He saved you. He sustains you right now. Drink in the fact that he's yours. The son of God, the savior of the world is yours. Even as you wake up tired, even as you're plodding through this injury or this ailment or these perplexing or testing situations, all my springs are in you, Jesus. You are my source. My life comes from you. You are the vine. I am a branch connected to you. You've caused me to be born into your house. All that I need 
is in your right hand. In your presence is fullness of joy. All my springs are in you. That's that's what we want to say. The, The Lord has brought to mind more recently the psalm that says, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. I don't often make the connection, but what I need most in this moment is to be satisfied by you so that I'm not drawn to be satisfied elsewhere so that I know experientially that my life comes from you. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. My springs come from you. My life is bound up with yours. It comes from you. Now we started this psalm talking about a city, Zion, which was a place, but God's presence on earth is now with his people, his church. But there will come a day when it will be both again, a city filled with God's people. Zion, the new Jerusalem. And do you know what's in Zion? A river. Revelation 22 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? The throne of God and of the Lamb. It's this picture of a a river bursting out from beneath a throne through the middle of the street of the city. It is definitely a focal point of God's new Jerusalem, and it's a symbol of life. A, a river that you right now through Christ can dip a cup in and drink in the fact that Christ is my life. I'm hidden with him, I'm safe with him, I'm satisfied by him. The river symbolizes that this is where the Lord of life reigns. No death allowed. And where we find eternal satisfaction. Just after those verses, there's this offer Right at the end of the Bible, literally four sentences from the end, this offer is made to you and me. The spirit and the bride don't say, this isn't for you. They say, come. And let the one who hears the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take, I want life, I want real life to take the water of life without price. And I gotta ask church, do you need a drink? A drink of the life found only in your savior? Or are you someone who's never tasted something that's satisfying, that that you've, you've known your whole life as such that says, I don't know where I belong. I feel like I'm in a wasteland. Everything that people are suggesting to me Just don't last. Come, drink of the water of life without price. Repent, believe, and you will be saved. For all of our death dealings and our sin, he offers us life, life that you're tasting right now. New life that comes as a result of God completely rewriting your identity, a life that you share with the other people in this room and a life that you will be experiencing with the Lord himself in his house forever. Just let it sink in this morning that that's, that future has been written into the book of Revelation for you to know this is what's coming. This is what's going to be true 
for me. There's been, there's been several, several things lately, whether things that you're going through. I have a dear friend, comatose in the hospital, that has made me, let me think about eternity. Let me, let me find in its description things that give me hope, that give me life. And, and for me to know that one of the descriptions of your city is that there's a river of life there that I get to drink, that I get to experience. I get to know, know what it's like currently, right now. That's just, it is, consider it tested this week that this is, this is so beneficial for you in the slog of your life right now. Revelation 21, verse three, a beautiful, beautiful verse. And I heard a loud voice coming from the throne. So this is Jesus saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And what does he say a few verses later? Behold, I am making all things new. I'll close with this. It's the last verse of a psalm written by John Newton called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, which was in verse three of this psalm. It's about this psalm. Here's the final verse. Savior, since of Zion city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but who? Zion's children No, and that's us. We are Zion's children. We know solid joys, we know lasting treasures because through Christ the living God dwells with us. And he's remade us to find our home with him forever. And we press on towards that day knowing that those joys and those treasures will be ours and we will be with him. So my prayer for you, leaving Psalm 87 and going into the days ahead is that uh, you would have certainty that, that I belong in God's place. He, is, he has done everything necessary to put me there. I belong to him. He has given me water to drink, never runs out. He's accessible to me at all times. May that just kind of bolster you, put, put some rocks underneath your feet to stand on.